Welcome to Downstage Center, a production of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. We're pleased to welcome today Ted Chapin, Theodore S. Chapin to be official, who is the President and Executive Director of the Rogers and Hammerstein Organization. According to your official bio, Ted, you preside over a staff of 50 people. You're responsible for the overall operation of various divisions within Rogers and Hammerstein, including Williamson Music, the Irving Berlin Music Company, the R&H Theater Library, R&H Concert Library. In plain English, what does that all mean? <laughs> sounds what, so what, what, sounds, what, what do you do? Sounds impressive. <laughs> um, it, it starts... With the simple comment that when Rodgers and Hammerstein were writing their shows, they wanted to hold on to all the control of their rights and to be the place that people would go to if people wanted to produce or sing one of their songs or whatever. So today we are basically, you know, as you described with all those fancy titles, <laughs> a group of businesses, all of which were formed to manage the copyrights of Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, sort of a boutique, if you will, mm -hmm. um, a little bit music publishing, a little bit licensing rights to shows from the high school to Broadway and everything in between. Um, and where the fun gets to the generation of us who are at the place today is once we all established the fact that that's what we were, because frankly, I've been there now 20 years, and when I got there, some of the family members weren't really sure what it was we did. <laughs> and when we all figured it out together, we realized we could do for others what we do for Rogers and Hammerstein, which is where Irving Berlin comes in, for example. We represent all of Irving Berlin. We represent the shows of Andrew Lloyd Webber and things like that. Uh -huh. So... Um on a day-to-day -day basis, you're basically a business in the business of show business. Yeah, it's the, it's the yeah the business part of show business. Right, the right. business that there. What did somebody say that they wish the business that was you know like was more business like <laughs> the, the show business whatever it was more business than show. Right, yeah. right. Just out of curiosity, at any given moment. How many Rodgers and Hammerstein productions are running around the world, from the high schools to the Broadway, as you mentioned? Well, we have figured out over the years that we license about 2,000 different productions of all the shows uh, in, in, in any given year. And it, it varies from year to year which ones are the most popular. Pretty much The Sound of Music in Oklahoma take the mm -hmm. one-two spot, and they mm -hmm. change a little bit uh -huh. from year to year with uh, Carousel, King and I in South Pacific being in the number two spot, and then... Uh, interestingly, uh, Cinderella that was right. done on television and Carousel being, you know, in the and, and State Fair. Now that we have a stage version of State Fair, who, who generally licenses Cinderella and State Fairs? School groups, I uh, big in the amateur market, which uh -huh. is school groups, and surprisingly big in the stock world. Um, I have seen, in fact, two productions of Cinderella at the St. Louis Muni. Um, in the summertime, one of which was on ice. If you can imagine an ice skating rink at the St. Louis Muni outdoors in St. Louis in August. Wow. I had to go because I couldn't believe it, and it was there. I don't know what that ice was made of, but well, there they were. What's the process, Ted? In terms of the professional productions, um, you're very careful to make sure that Roger and Hammerstein's work is done properly. What's the approach when somebody says all right, we're ready to do the next big Broadway revival, and there's been a number of them over probably the past decade, sort of probably going starting with the, with the carousel at Lincoln Center sort of triggered it. What, what do you, what is your staff, what do you look for, and what control do you exert when a producer comes to you and says that they want to they wanna look at this work? Well, it's, it's all subjective to a certain extent because um, in terms of the 
major productions that are going to have major exposure, we obviously want to be careful to talk to the people that we think have the shot of of doing it well, understanding that there's nothing definite in the theater anyway, and the best people in the world can stumble, and people who you've never heard of can do brilliant work. So to walk that fine line between people who we think understand what the shows are about can give them a kind of production which is going to flatter what the show is all about and not try to turn it into something that it is not. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's subjective, but you do the best that you can. I think it's important, certainly important for me to understand that when I got to the office, what, was, what seemed very clear was even though Rogers and Hammerstein wanted to control their destiny, they wanted their shows done. They licensed. They liked the shows in the high schools, understanding that the productions in the high schools were clearly not going to be up to the standard of a Broadway or a touring production. But they obviously felt that it was a good idea to encourage people to experience their shows. Therefore, I use that as, as a, a basis of saying, you know, sort of more the merrier rather than Irving Berlin, on the other hand, who had a reputation of being very, very tough and not wanting things done. And as a result, when we took over the Irving Berlin catalog, part of our our challenge was to wake it up and to tell people, tell the users that, in fact, you know, the Irving Berlin family is open for business. And if you want to, you know, use the song White Christmas in a movie, yes, we can actually license well, that. Well, to use an example, in the past couple of years, we had Annie Get Your Gun rewritten by Peter Stone, had uh, Flower Drum Song rewritten by David Henry Huang. What's the process of that, and how does how do you deal with the family members? Because there are children of these composers still around, correct? Oh, there are. So, <laughs> so how do you? You're the go between right. between am, the I producers, am. and what? So, what can you tell us about about those recent examples? Well, it's interesting that states? it's interesting that the the major the major Rodgers and Hammerstein shows um, have been the subject of some rather extraordinary Broadway productions recently. You mentioned the carousel that Nicholas Heitner did first at the National Theater and came to Lincoln Center. That was pretty extraordinary. Uh, Trevor Nunn did in Oklahoma, also at the National, that was extraordinary. More, alas, extraordinary in England than than here. Um, But those productions didn't make changes, made minor, minor changes, and they mostly had to do with either something from, in the case of Oklahoma, from the film version that Trevor wanted to inform in terms of just taking some of the stagecraft between scenes and maybe doing a transition a little bit more. It's very, very minor, but he was meticulous about it. And Nick Heitner really cut one song, but otherwise he, he stayed very close to it, although he did want to redo the, the, the choreography. So those shows that are classics tend to be tweaked, and we won't give a lot of flexibility to people who feel that what Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote is the blueprint from which they're to create a show. On the other hand, when you get to a show like Annie Get Your Gun, which in that case, you know, there is a song called I'm an Indian Too, which in 1946, when the show was first done, the audiences accepted the notion of having a little fun with the idea of making Annie Oakley a real Indian by doing a lot of jokes about, you know, what kind of Indian things that, that she would do, that in this day and age, the sensitivities have changed, and you don't really lose much by cutting that song. So in the case of Annie Get Your Gun, uh, Barry and Fran Weisler, who were the, the producers, said from the get-go, we don't want to do that song, and the family understood it right away. There was no question about it. So if I'm understanding you correctly, when Trevor Nunn did Oklahoma, did he have to get the approval of Rogers and Hammerstein oh, organization? absolutely. For any of the changes? Absolutely. Even one word change, you have to approve Absolutely, really? and he was meticulous. I mean, some people are more meticulous than others. I did once go to 
Copenhagen for a production of this of South Pacific in Danish, which I didn't understand except I know the show, and they had switched scenes around in the first act and nobody had told me. So I was the sort of visiting dignitary watching on stage something which nobody had asked and they would not have given permission mm. um, if they had asked. And so I wanted to find out how long the run was. When was it closing? Because, so what do you do? <laughs> but in that instance, in that in- instance, you know, the, I was seeing it towards the end of a not very long run. Um, and I could be, I could smile that night, and then go back to the agent who licensed that that show and say, um, do, "Were you aware of the fact that changes were made?" Because in some instances, um, theater people don't make everybody aware of it, or you know, there's somebody who didn't get cast who uh, is angry enough to make people aware of and things like that. Have but, you been in the position of either stopping a show or forcing changes on a show that was up and running? Yes, in fact, this very week, there's a production of South Pacific in, in uh, Australia that they wanted to change around the beginning of the second act. And, uh, you know, I just, I mean, I guess I've been at this game long enough that in that instance, I was n- not moved by it because in the second act, uh, again, what I've learned about the Rodgers and Hammerstein shows, the, the good ones, the classic ones, is they are incredibly well constructed. And, you know, the top of the second act of South Pacific starts with the backstage scene preparing Honey Bun, and then there's the song Happy Talk. And Happy Talk is not a song that you start the, the act with. And mm-hmm. so it was just a very simple, no, sorry, I'm sorry your set is complicated, no. It's, you shouldn't have taken that upon yourself to begin with. It's kind of like if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah, and, <laughs> and I, in a funny way, the longer I'm at the office, the more I, I feel confident saying that. Uh-huh. But there also was this a famous production, Anne Bogart did a production of South Pacific at NYU when I was first at the office. And the producers came to me and said, well, she hasn't changed a word. And I said... Okay. But. <laughs> okay. What are you saying to me? But the words aren't necessarily said by the people that the script says. But they had actually looked at what the, what the license agreement said and felt that they were within the license agreement. Um, th- what they had done is they had taken the production and set it in a rehabilitation ward so that it was actually part of the rehabilitation from people coming back from the war to do this show. And I sat there thinking this isn't remotely what Rodgers and Hammerstein and in that instance Josh Logan wrote – but it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Now, in that instance, they again, they had a run. They wanted to extend the run. We didn't extend the run. But there was also a production a year or two ago at the uh, Repertory Theater in New Haven, which somehow merged Cinderella, Macbeth, Cinderella, Mac- Medea, Medea, and and uh, there was there was a third one. Was it M- Macbeth, Medea, oh, okay. Cinderella? Yeah. And and that clearly was taking that work and adapting it. How did you how did you come well, in, to, in that to instance, allow that? In that instance, Bill Bill Rauch Bill Rauch from Rauch, Cornerstone from Cornerstone, uh, a very good um, theater company, had this idea and came to us at the very very beginning of it. Uh, was he the producer? Yeah, he was the director. director. It's his company. I um, mean, he's a very interesting director, and he you know he had this idea of putting these three t- together, sort of performed at the same time. Um, in one evening. Mm-hmm. And again, Cinderella is a little bit of a different case because it was a television show. And it's a fairly generic telling of Cinderella. So in that instance, when I brought this up to the families and I said, you know, here's here's a show that, I mean, I wouldn't recommend doing this with Oklahoma. I wouldn't recommend doing this with, with Carousel. But in the case of Cinderella, it probably can withstand th- th- this kind of, you know, tweaking. And I think we got credit for having done that. A moment ago, you mentioned Flower Drum Song. The revival a couple of years ago was, I guess, controversial to be kind. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about all the major changes made to the book, and obviously you approved of all of that. Tell us about that whole process and, and why you felt it was necessary to change Flower Drum. 
Okay, um, Flower Drum Song is 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 one of the shows in our library, which, as as one of our guys said, we can't give away with a plate of dishes. Nobody <laughs> wants to do Flower Drum Song. Um, interestingly, you know, it was successful in its day. It had a successful tour. Um, and it had the life of a hit show written by hit writers at the time that it first uh, came out. And then it basically went into dormancy. I mean, we would be lucky if we did two productions a year and some years none at all. So in that instance, the last thing in the world any of us thought of was, oh, let's do something to Flower Drum Song. It was actually David Henry Wong who approached us and said, um, Flower Drum Song to my generation of uh, Asian Americans is a guilty pleasure because it's hopelessly outdated, it's hopelessly politically incorrect, and we secretly love it. Um, and I'd like to see if we couldn't take the, and again, I'm not sure anybody's ever done this particular thing with a musical. We want to take the locale, we want to take the character names, we want to take the era and keep those and write an entirely different story with different people with some of the same character names but using the original score. So it was a different puzzle. And frankly, because it was David Henry Wong, if anybody was going to have the ability to give a modern authenticity to the elements of that show which have become outdated, we figured he was he was the one. In yeah. hindsight, were you to redo it, would you do it any differently than you did? No. Not at all. I happen to love it. I think. Um, I mean, I, I have some minor. I had some minor concerns about the production when it was all said and done, um, but ultimately, I was very proud of it, mm-hmm. and I'm happy to say that. And so it was an interesting situation because although Roger and Hammerstein were long gone, you actually see why Lee, who wrote the book on, that it was all originally based on, is still around. And he was thrilled. He was thrilled again in, in an interesting way. You have C. Y. Lee and David Henry Wong two major figures in a certain area of, of literature and, and, and that, that know each other. And, you know, C. Wiley was, was delighted that somebody had paid attention to, you know, to Flower Drum Now, song. after you had met with him and decided to redo it, you picked up the phone and you called Mary Rogers or anybody in the family. How did you explain to them what you wanted to do and what was their reaction? Well, actually, changes? It, it, interesting because at that time it was Mary Rogers and James Hammerstein. And James uh-huh. Hammerstein had a very, very emotional connection to Flower Drum Song. He was the stage manager on the original production and directed a production in Las Vegas, which he was very, very proud of and said it was the pr- only production of Flower Drum Song that actually worked. He had cut it down. So he was he was less willing at the beginning than Mary was. And the original director um, was interesting because the the first script that David Henry Wong did was awful. And it was a script that had been clearly done by a writer who wasn't wasn't versed in the musical theater, but looked at lyrics and was influenced by lyrics. And um, we there's, we had one meeting where James Hammerstein basically said, "That's not the right director." Mm-hmm. And so, ultimately, every step along the way, you know, we talked about it. We saw a script. We had, you know, we had a, we were part of the collaboration. Mm-hmm. Is really what it was. Well, not just with Flower Drum, but with. In general, all your various productions, how involved do the various families get? The Rogers family, the Hammerstein family, the Berlin family? Well, again, it, it does depend. The Rogers family and the Hammerstein family grew up in the theater. I mean, Mary Rogers, as you know, is a composer and a writer on her own right. Um, James Hammerstein and his brother William Hammerstein were both stage managers and directors and sometime writers. So they understand how the theater works. It's interesting. We are right now in the process of doing a stage adaptation of White Christmas, the movie White Christmas. 
And the three Irving Berlin daughters aren't that familiar with the actual process. And just the other day, I, I explained to them how their strength is best used by not diving into every detail. You know, wait for a run-through. Look at a script. Make your comments. Wait for a run-through. Wait for a reading. Wait until you can be you can get a sense of the whole because then, you're, then your instincts will be unerring and very important. Yeah. But, you know, you carry a very big stick here. Let's leave it on the ground as much as we possibly can. Uh, everybody knows it's there. But, I mean, that's just the way I feel having wor- worked in the theater, if, you know, in and out of, of different jobs in my life. You know, the people who have the real power are most powerful when they don't have to use it. (laughs) Well, you mentioned this White Christmas, and of course, a few years ago, State Fair was taken, was really the film put onto the stage. Um, What's going on with White Christmas? That's going to be done in California? Yeah, because everybody feels that a show, a a musical entitled White Christmas, is probably going to be popular at one time of the year. Um, maybe not, but certainly from the get-go, there's a period. It has a certain built-in marketing link. So, Jeffrey Seller and, and Kevin McCollum, who are very good producers, um, are smart enough to mount this production in San Francisco for three months this year only. It'll open at the Current Theater. Preview start the second of November. Um, and it'll play through through the Christmas season. The plan is we'll see what it is. Uh, if it is a Christmas time perennial, you know, it will it can be done in other theaters in future years. I'm desperate to get it into our rental library and let the theaters who may be sick of doing a Christmas Carol have an alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so that's that's the hat that I want to wear here the most because I don't think it's a Broadway show. I don't think it should be thought of as a Broadway show. And even though there are a lot of Broadway people doing it, I think everybody understands that this would be nice to be an annuity but not necessarily come into town and risk you risk all that that you have to risk in New York. Even, even for a short run, a uh, planned well, you know, short run. The good thing about this is that everybody knows exactly what this year is, and we can all sit and figure out what, you know, what it is and what it isn't. Mm. Well, we're talking about where shows go and the right place for them. We're talking about the cultural issues of uh, Flower Drum Song. Uh, you spent some time in China recently looking at a tour of The Sound of Music. I, I did. I did, actually. How does China take to... And that's a production done in English. It's it's, it's an American it, touring production. And so it's based on the production that was on Broadway now a few years ago? Uh, the, the only thing that's left that, that feels or, or, or is the sense of that is the, the set, the set oh, and some okay. of the costumes. But it's a completely different uh, director. So how does... It's not taking Flower Drum Song to China. No. It's... it's how does it play? Well, China, as as you know, is is a is a is a fascinating territory, and the rest of the world is is very interested in what's going on there. And among other cultural eye opening th- things in the in uh, in the Chinese culture is the notion of musicals. And the two musicals that they know and like are West Side Story and The Sound of Music. Hmm. I was told that for thirty years, Do Re Mi and Edelweiss have been in Chinese textbooks. Which is part of why they know, and of course they know the the movie. Although I don't think it's ever been shown legally in China, but that doesn't stop anybody in China. Clearly, <laughs> um, but it's interesting. I, I was told that it's uh, often the, the phrase "do re mi" has come to be a greeting to Westerners. When you walk down the street, they will, if they see that you as a Westerner, they will say "do re mi." Uh, so, really? in they've all, it, Shanghai, as you know, is being uh, is wildly under construction. And a few years ago, they built a beautiful new theater called the Shanghai Grand. Um, and part of that theater's programming is to to get musicals. So th- it took many years to put this together, and it actually is going to be touring through other cities in China, which if you can imagine 
getting a production mounted in English of The Sound of Music in China is one thing. To take it from the Shanghai Grand in what is arguably their biggest and most sophisticated city and taking it to any city that's going to be less sophisticated is going to be um, a challenge, and they're rising to the challenge. Mm, interesting. Now, you mentioned before that Oklahoma and Sound of Music are your two most requested, most performed shows. Sound of Music uh, around the world. When you came into the studio today, you gave us a CD with a very interesting version of The Sound of Music on it. Why don't you set that up for us so okay. we can play a song from it? <laughs> Happy to. Um, in the Richard Rogers centennial year of 2002, we assembled a, a CD, which is a, a challenge. I mean, Richard Rogers, you know, started writing in the 1920s, and his last musical was on Broadway in 1979. So you have a lot of – you have the Rogers and Hart era. You have the Rogers and Hammerstein era. You actually have the whole era after Hammerstein, which is often forgotten, but it actually is the longest era of his career. So to put together 20 selections of Richard Rogers is a challenge. And I was sort of ruthless at the office because a lot of people wanted to settle for things. And they had personal favorites. Tammy Wynette singing um, You'll Never Walk Alone was the <laughs> personal favorite of some, not, not of mine. But when we put this together, we found this album that had been done in Sweden um, of a production of, of The Sound of Music. But it wasn't a cast album. It was an album with the people who were in the show doing the songs from The Sound of Music. And what we found is this guy, Tommy Sherberg, who... Um, did chess in London and is quite an interesting performer. And he does on this CD a version of Climb Every Mountain. Now, we put this on our Roger Centennial CD partly with the feeling that when you start to listen to this, you'll think, oh, this is funny because it's in a language I don't understand. But the reason we put it on here is when you listen to it, when you get to the end, this man delivers the music of this song as well as anybody ever has and ever will. And we'll all sing along in our <laughs> respective languages. Well, the thing is, if anybody were to translate it back from the Swedish, Lord knows what he's actually <laughs> saying, but it sure sounds good. The Sound of Music in Swedish. Climb every mountain. The Swedish version of Climb Every Mountain from The Sound of Music here at XM28 on Broadway. I'm John von Susten along with Howard Sherman. We're talking with Ted Chapin, who is the president and executive director of the Rogers and Hammerstein organization. But, Ted, now to swing from your profession to your love of theater, you uh, last year uh, had great success with the publication of the book Everything Was Possible, The Birth of the Musical Follies. And can you tell us how you came to write the definitive book on Follies? Which had nothing to do with Rodgers and Hammerstein, Stephen Sondheim. You were right. Of course. Well, you were 20 years old when you started this project. I was indeed. I was indeed. Well, it's... Uh, it, it, it's in some ways, um, uh, you know, in lieu of a midlife crisis, uh, this, th I could write this book and, and I've had great fun doing it. Um, when I was in college, actually, I'd, I had been on a program at the O'Neill Theater Center, which Howard spent, spent some time running. Um, a wonderful student program called the National Theater Institute. I was on the very first program, the first semester of it. Barry Grove of the Manhattan Theater Club and I were fellow students. Along with Gordon Clapp from Gordon NYPD Clapp. Blue. That's right. We yep. were pretty good. And, and, and I suspect half the class went running from the profession, which is a subtext of that program that's just fine to have people who think they want to be in the theater realizing they don't have, they don't want to be. Anyway, I didn't want to go back to college because this had been such a mind-blowing experience. And I knew I'd, I loved the work of Stephen Sondheim. And at that point, you know, to most of the world, it was company and then lyrics before. Um, and I knew that Follies was going into rehearsal in January, and I talked the college into giving me credit for observing it, and I talked how Prince into – I just was going to observe. I just wanted to see 
how a musical got put together. You wanted to be the fly on the wall. So I wanted to, to be the fly on the wall. And um, I had been a gopher on other shows. In the, again, I was very good at figuring out what shows were going into rehearsal during the summer, and I could be a gopher. And, and you know, I was enthusiastic. I wanted to keep my eyes and ears open. And gopher being the euphemism for production assistant. Go for Somebody, this. Go, go for, for coffee. coffee. Go right. No, that. production assistant is the euphemism. Right. Gopher, gopher is the actual <laughs> job. Right. So, I, you know, I, one of the things that I had, I had agreed to keep a journal for college so that at least, I, you know, I wanted, I knew that I I wanted to get out of college at the time that was designated. Therefore, I needed to get course credit for this. So I kept a journal. What I didn't know at the time was that Follies at $850,000 was $100,000 over budget. And anybody who knows Follies, it was it has showgirl beaded costumes. I mean, it one staggers to think what that show would cost today. But $800,000 was a lot of money then. In fact, the costume designer says that if, in fact, the show were done, if she did those costumes today, it would be $2 million for the costumes alone. And, of course, being loosely based on the Ziegfeld Follies, it had to have that showgirl, Busby Berkeley type of atmosphere, Ziegfeld atmosphere. Oh, and there were were showgirls who were were seven feet tall with great big (laughs) plumed headdresses and, you know, butterfly showgirls and stuff like that. Although in the book, they're only six feet tall. They've grown. Well, no, they uh, (laughs) – With with, with their headdresses. With the the platform shoes on the headdresses. You're absolutely I stand correct. But anyway, so I, I, uh, because they were over budget, I ended up being the production assistant. I thought I was just going to sit there, um, but I was asked to do things. And in retrospect, it was the best thing possible because it gave me a, a position in the company, although a small position. But I could be anywhere without people thinking that I was the person writing a book. And in fact, there are only two people in the company who ever were aware of this and said to me, you know, what are you doing with that book? But you weren't writing a book per se. You were writing a paper for school. Right. I was just writing a paper. But they thought it was a book. But I I kept notes. Anyway, it just as follies through the years became follies. Um, and p- people would find out that I had done this, and they'd ask these esoteric questions. The first person who did that was, was funny was Frank Rich, who wrote an extraordinary review of Follies when he was at Harvard. Um, and I describe in the book in some detail what it's like when a company sees a review like Frank Rich's, which is very interesting, um, and how some of the people are wa- are fascinated by it. Others just want to be told it's a good review or a bad review. But it's interesting. Somebody, after this book came out, said no one has ever described that moment. I mean, they talk about the reviews are good, the reviews are bad, the show fails, the show succeeds, but no one's ever really talked about what it's like when you're working on a show and you receive a review and have to deal with it. Um, so anyway, but I would run I, – when I met Frank, I said – you know, we were very adult, and, you know, I was Rogers and Hammerstein. He was the drama critic of the New York Times, and um, we were terribly adult. And then I said, by the way, I was a gopher on Follies, and I remember your review. And he looked at me and said, you were a gopher on Follies? I said, mm-hmm. yes. He said, how many times did Alexis Smith cut Could I Leave You in Boston? Mm-hmm. And I suddenly realized the Follies mavens, like, cut right to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that it, you know, it became apparent that this was a show bigger than that. And a couple of years ago, I was at a party, and talking to somebody I just met and explained this to me. I didn't realize the woman worked for the New York Times, is a great putter together or anyway, I've learned. She's just the kind of person who just loves to say, oh, you know, you and you have to meet for this reason. And she said to me, you were a gopher. You kept the journal. There's a book in it. I'm sending you to my friend who's a book agent who then said to me, Bob Gottlieb has got to buy this book for Knopf. So I, as a first-time author, I am more than willing to say this was a lucky, lucky series of events that got this book published by Knopf, and I'm happy to say just entered its third printing, which surprises even Knopf, I have to say. Before we talk more specifically about the experience of the show, the experience of the book, there are certainly still plenty of people around who are involved in Follies. There are sadly many who are gone. 
what were the responses that you received as people started hearing these stories again, being reminded of moments they hadn't had? Because some of these are people who you still encounter professionally on a regular basis from Hal Prince and Stephen Sondheim on down. Right. A very good good question. Before I began, I wanted to make absolutely certain that Hal Prince and Steve Sondheim were okay about my doing this because I just, there was no reason to do it otherwise. And they were, they had very characteristic and very different responses. Hal said, I'm always asked about writing about the process. I don't want to write about it. I want to do it. Steve Sondheim looked at me and said, do you have enough? And I said, I think I do. Um, And then told him a story that I had read that morning, which he loved. So he, you know, I, I sort of got the general sense of, oh, you know, it's okay. But for the most part, everybody, it was such a special experience to everybody involved with it that 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 the people that I did r- run into were absolutely fascinated by it. And I mean, one of the of the quotes that that I, I used in there, which was actually from Harvey Evans, who was in it, because it sort of summed up what everybody said who was involved in it, which is, I don't mind if on my tombstone it says, "Here lies Harvey Evans; he was in Follies," because <laughs> it meant that much to all the people who who were involved in the That's show. That's interesting. the The book is a very easy and very fascinating read, but it's based on the notes of a 20-ish college student written 30 years later by a man who has has 30-some-odd years of perspective on the theater. How much of the book is the college student notes, and how much is your perspective over time and other people remembering various things along the way? um, You couldn't have asked a more specific and good question, because (laughs) when I did this, I thought I... I will stand by the level of sophistication that the 20-year-old had. Uh-huh. Um, even a couple of moments when I winced, when I was putting it together, thinking, well, I can always cut it out. I'm not going to change it and pretend that I was more sophisticated than I was then. But what I tried to do was to keep the facts of follies ba- back then. But, for example, when I describe what a zitz probe is, what goes on in in certain things of doing a show, obviously my having seen others in the, in the ensuing years g- allowed me to flesh it out more so that people who might not know what it is could actually be more in the moment. Um, but I tried to be very careful that I wasn't going to pretend that I was, I mean, whether I'm sophisticated now or not, but that I didn't have, you know, a 50-year-old's mm-hmm. view at that point. And you also seem to um, be, in my opinion, at least not having been there myself, obviously, you seem to be fairly objective, and you didn't really pull any punches. If somebody was good, you said they were good. If somebody wasn't quite up to snuff, you... I, I didn't have an agenda doing this book other than than going back and reliving an experience that was very special to me. And I, as I was doing it, I was, I was constantly aware of the lessons that I actually learned on Follies that I have kept with me. Um, but I decided that there would be enough people looking at it before it got printed who would tell me, you can't say this, you can't say that, that I just said what I thought w- was right. Again, I didn't hate anybody. Um, I observed things and felt that, that, that the, the value to somebody who isn't trying to get even is to report it. And if people you know, weren't at their best, I do try to make the point that the, the pressures of putting on a new musical are fierce. And you do see everybody in their in their best and worst state and, you know, I guess my subtext of that was, so put it all in perspective, reader. Don't, you know, you know, don't, you know, don't just pinpoint, you know, saying I was mean to Fifi Dorsey. I'll say, you know, she, you know, did it to herself. So after the book was published, what were the reactions of the various people that you talk about, Sondheim and Hal Prince? And they were, they've been great. Sondheim and Prince have been, have been great. And actually, I, I got a, a Theater Library Association award and Hal agreed to give it to me. And it was pretty funny. He said, those of you who hire 
who hire uh, gophers, be careful. They may end up end up being your Boswells. <laughs> um, and Steve has been wonderful. In fact, he called me the other day. This is just a funny little story for the for, for the Sondheim fanatics. Um, in the in the book, I I chronicle. I'm still here because I'm still here was written out of town, which we'll get to in a second. Um, and the the manuscript, the one and only manuscript of the song, was handed to me after Hal Prince had played it, and, and I mean that I had heard it, and obviously Michael Bennett had. I don't know if Yvonne DiCarlo had heard it yet, but I was handed this to go up and type out the lyrics. So in the book, I explain this, and there's one thing that's in there that I said, oh, the lyrics are wonderful. They had things like BB's Bathysphere, Greer Garson, blah blah. I got a call the other day from Steve Sondheim because that excerpt has been published in the magazine, and he said, Ted. Ted, this is really trivial, but where's the Greer Garson lyric and I'm still here? <laughs> At which point I quoted him, the Greer Garson lyric, which was cut in Boston. Um, and he said, oh, that's good. I said, <laughs> yeah, it is good. You wrote it and you cut it. He said, well, I wonder why we cut it. And I said, you know, since this book was published, I've been waiting for some Sondheim maven to call me and say, where's the Greer Garson lyric and I'm still here? And he said, I guess I'm your maven. <laughs> but it's funny. I mean, that's that's the kind of stuff that, that, that that's the kind of reaction that this book has gotten. And, and a lot of the cast members have, as I said, the upside of Follies. We've been having these reunions, doing a couple of events at Barnes & Noble and stuff. And uh-huh. I've, some of them have come and sung. And it's like, where are we going next? This is great. I mean, the, the characters in Follies have a dreadful time at their reunion. These people are having a great time. <laughs> well, backing up for a moment, you talked about chronicling I'm Still Here, and you brought something with you today that we that, that not that many people have had a chance to hear, we no, imagine. No, no. So tell us about this special <laughs> not-on-any-album cut that and, our and listeners as you know, get to hear. You know, the, the, the Sondheim fans know that almost everything he's ever written has been documented somewhere, but this is one thing I don't think has been documented. Um, when Yvonne DiCarlo was hired for the role of Carlotta Campion in Follies, the idea of the part was a mo- faded movie queen who comes back to this reunion because no matter how big a star she'd been, she had one song in the Follies and it had been cut. And she was determined before she died she was going to do the song. And it's a song called Can That Boy Foxtrot, which, as everybody said, is a one-joke thing because you linger on the, on the F of Foxtrot, so draw your own conclusions <laughs> as to what it is that that boy can do. Um, because it was Yvonne DiCarlo, Steve Sondheim wrote this elaborate middle section where the character was playing all the ca- – it was a college song and playing all these different parts. Yvonne DiCarlo worked long and hard on it. When it opened in Boston, it was seven minutes long. It had all of this in it. And actually, interestingly, before the show opened for the critics in Boston, the decision had been made to cut it. So – while they decided to cut it, they had no idea what was going to replace it, but they decided to but, cut it. But it was running the first couple of performances. It, it was in the it show. Was, it, ran, it ran for the first, I think, two weeks of the run in Boston, but they cut the middle section out. So then Stephen Sondheim disappeared for a couple of weeks, came back with I'm Still Here, which was the replacement song, and it, be, and it was a sort of famous out-of-town replacement. Um, but what I, what I did and what I have and what we're going to hear is the last performance of Yvonne DiCarlo singing Can That Boy Foxtrot, which I made backstage. You know, they have squawk boxes backstage in theater so the actors can hear the show um, so they know what their, when their cues are. So this was me standing with my little tape recorder with a microphone up at a speaker <laughs> backstage at the Colonial Theater on the night of, I think it's March 6th, don't hold me to it, 1971 at the Colonial Theater, Yvonne DiCarlo's final performance of Can That Boy Foxtrot. Except for those few people in the theater in Boston, probably never heard by anybody else in the universe. That's, I think that's true. <laughs> An unheard, so to speak, Sondheim song, Can That Boy Foxtrot. 
Well, the Pit. song itself has has been heard outside of the show. We've never heard Ivan De Carlo's version because that's true. It's, it's it's been heard in a few other. It was instances. in the. It was recorded for the movie The Birdcage with Nathan Lane singing it. Although I think it was cut out of the movie, but it's on the album. So it's really had its problems getting heard. Right. But interesting. When I first saw Side by Side by Sondheim on Broadway, um, David, not David Kernan, uh, uh, who's the other, the, the British guy, um, Neil Sharon, Ned Sharon, Ned Sharon, um, said to the audience, you know, now the next song we're going to play, you know. You don't know this song unless you were in Boston in two weeks in February of 1971. And I thought to myself, I know. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, now, now, the show was running very long at this point, more than two hours long. There was no intermission at this point. That was put in later. And this was a seven-some-odd-minute yeah. song. No, actually, you have it a little reversed. Do I? All the way through Boston, it had an intermission. It had an intermission at the at the same place, and interestingly, nobody paid any attention to it whatsoever. Okay, I, I, th- I thought the first night there was no intermission, and there was discussion no, on, when on it a came, Sunday morning. When it came to New York, they, when it came to New York in its two act version, in the first four previews, suddenly everybody focused on where to place the intermission. Uh-huh. So it was placed in four different, pl- three different places, and then on the Saturday night, it was played without an intermission, and it stayed that way all throughout the uh-huh. New York run. And I think one of the interesting little things about that, a little subtext is I don't think in the computer age that we live in you could change the position of the intermission in each of four performances on Broadway because I think it would take you at least three days to reprogram all the computers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just a little bit. That's the way theater is done nowadays. Of the good old days. Back yeah. in 71. Well, can that boy Foxtrot the decision was made to dump it. Why not just to rewrite it, try to rework that one song instead of scrapping it entirely? Well, what I they did rework it. They, they tried to rework it by by doing the middle section. But it, as as tension mounted out of town, it became clear that there were people who never liked Can That Boy Foxtrot to begin with. Jim Goldman is he said, I never thought everybody was talking about this gem. It was never a gem to me. So I think there was nobody who was ready to to to, to urge that it be re- rewritten yet again. What I think is most interesting in terms of the musical theater and how the musical theater has been put together th- through the years is clearly the part that Yvonne DiCarlo played was a, was a cameo part. They cast a star who had big billing, who was in fact the biggest name in, on the marquee because of the Munsters, but <laughs> she was known more than Alexis Smith or Dorothy Collins or John McMartin or Jean Nelson. Um, what they decided to do was instead of giving her a joke they decided to make it real to give her a real moment so that this woman this faded movie star who comes to this reunion of the follies has a moment of 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 revelation of just you know a moment of statement of survival and that's basically it was actually i, I wrote down a conversation that, that that jim goldman had said you know i said you know why don't you write some song about that she's still here because she's been around for a long time or something and you know it's like in the great it's like she's still here i'm still wow pull that idea out and write this song which really i mean i've always contended it's it's as much about yvonne de carlo as it's about the character although steve sondheim said he was thinking joan crawford but just all the those wonderful images about, you know, what it was like. There's also just a wonderful thing in I'm Still Here, which, again, is a thing I just think is important for people to know about musical theater. There was one line that she had in, in one of her, you know, drunken, you know, toss-offs in the party where she said, I used to be, uh, what is it, um, I, I used to be somebody's hot-pantsed mother, you know, now I'm now I'm just you know something. Now I'm somebody's hot-pantsed mother, stinko by my pool, and all my kids are acid heads. I love it. And so Steve took that and put the lyric in about, you know, been through, you know, about being stink at my pool. Just took the phrase 
got through it stinko by my pool. And I thought, you know, that's the great tradition of, you know, good composers and lyricists steal from the best. So who ultimately decided to drop that song and ask Sondheim for a replacement? Was it Sondheim's decision? Was it somebody else's? It was, well, in that, in the case of Follies, it was very clearly Hal Prince was the boss, Michael Bennett was the co-director and choreographer, Jim Goldman was the librettist, and Steve Sondheim was the composer-lyricist. The decisions were made by those four. Now, I don't know who, you know, who was the first person who said it must be this, it must be that. I, I wasn't in on all the conversations, but clearly, you know, whatever conversations happened that I didn't know, Steve Sondheim did disappear. No one quite knew where he was. He didn't even come to the theater to, to see the show. And then he came back and he had this song. Obviously, I'm Still Here, one of the best-known songs from Follies. Ted Chapin, the... Uh, the Fly on the Wall, and the <laughs> author of Everything Was Possible, the book about follies. It's a very interesting book, Ted. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I tried to make it so that people, that it, was a good, that, was, that it would be a good read for people who are interested in musicals. I mean, the follies people, I figured, would like the book, but also that tried to chronicle what goes on in a musical so that people who want to do musicals or are doing musicals can see what this one was like. Do you think this will be the first of several books? Or will there be another book from Ted Not Chapin? for a while. You, Not for a while. Also, this is What great. were the other shows you took well, notes on while you were a well, production I, assistant? Well, no, I, was, I was thinking a little bit different than that. A book about Rogers, a book about Hammerstein, a book about Hart, a book about people that obviously you represent now. Well, it's interesting that I, I did enjoy the writing process, I have to say. Uh, I, I, when, I, when the contract for the book came through and I thought, oh my lord, I really have to see if I can do this. I took a week's vacation, disappeared, told my wife to stay here, took the dogs up to Connecticut and thought, okay, I'm going to try to see if I can crack, crack the back of this. And I worked for an entire week, and I did. I got 100 pages done, and I thought, okay. But I didn't really have to do a lot of research. I mean, I had the research there, so yeah. it was really a question of, of going back in time. I had my notes. I had my spiral notebooks. I had the report that I had done for Connecticut College, which wasn't all that good, and I never quite finished it, but nonetheless, I had the source material. Was this ever graded, Ted? It was graded. I got two A's, actually. <laughs> um, but I think I got two A's because they didn't know how to grade it. And, and to be, I mean, the funny thing was they didn't know what I was doing at Connecticut College. I mean, I was one of 36 men who had gone to Connecticut College for women when it went co-ed, and they didn't really know how to deal with us. But when Follies opened and Alexa Smith kicking up her heels was on the cover of Time magazine, some of the administration members of Connecticut College thought, who, who is this guy? What did he know that we, don't, we didn't know? So, yeah, they, they, they were very appreciative. Is there any temptation to write a book about? Um, I, I don't know. I've been asked this. I don't have it. You know, I don't have one in, in my mind. I did like the process. I, I don't think I would have time, given my Rogers and Hammerstein responsibilities, to do one that would need major interviews, major research, well, stuff like that. How about just coordinating others to write a chapter, a piece, their own remembrances of Rogers or Hammerstein? Or well, Rogers. it's interesting. The thing that I have thought about was, was and it's a version of that, which is what a, a lot of us at the office have learned incredible things about these shows, what makes them tick, why, for example, when you set a production of The Sound of Music outdoors, as the Broadway production did, how that undermines the undermines something in Maria the outdoors to Maria is her sanctuary and she goes from one cloistered area to another to the Von Trapp mansion now that actually never occurred to me till Andre Bishop told said that to me talking after he'd seen the Broadway production and I suddenly thought wow that's really smart because you know the, the whole the show was written with Maria out you know where's Maria in the cloister ah she's outside the hills are alive and then back into the abbey and then back into the Von Trapp house so putting the Von Trapp house out that kind of stuff which I think 
if there are guides to people who want to do the Rogers and Hammerstein shows in the future of these kinds of things which which were either taken for granted or were never chronicled or whatever that might be kind of you know interesting mm-hmm. to do um there are a fair number of books on musicals these days and there have been biographies of Rogers there have been joint biographies of Rogers and Hammerstein um I would if I do something I would want to do something that that hasn't been done what is your opinion of current Broadway productions? Many of them are so different than Rodgers and Hammerstein's. Obviously, it's a, it's a different age, a different era. Uh, a tough question. Ultimately, we're not in an era where the writers are in charge. Uh, there aren't writers. There aren't the kinds of writers that were in charge as they were in the Rodgers and Hammerstein and Cole Porter and Lerner and Lowe era. And I think that we're in an era where if anybody's in charge, it's the producers. And the problem with that is that we have the corporate producers. So I think that's kind of in a nutshell where I think the where the inspirational problems of Broadway lie. I mean, it's it, in the history of Broadway, the power has shifted. I mean, there was a time in the Ziegfeld era where it was clearly the entrepreneurial producer. And as I said, the Rodgers and Hammerstein era where it was the writers. And then there was the director choreographers there for a, a period of time. And I think we're not in any particular period now. And that's not – it's not healthy. It's not as healthy as it, as it should be. Mm-hmm. Well, Ted, thank you. With with the book, with Rodgers and Hammerstein organization, it's really a remarkable range that, that you've had exposure to. And uh, – We'll be watching for the paperback of Everything Was Possible, hopefully soon, but the hardcover, as you say, is out there in its third printing. And And uh, in the meantime, whether we're in China or anywhere else in the world, we can always see a Rodgers and Hammerstein show. Kind of like the sun never sets on the British Empire. We hope. The sun never sets on Rodgers and Hammerstein productions. We hope. We hope. (laughs) But this has been fun. I've enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you so much for coming in today. My pleasure. I'm John von Susten at XM Satellite Radio. I'm Howard Sherman from the American Theater Wing. And please join us again next time for Downstage Center.